message to say to your son who's just told you, Dad, you've abandoned the family. But uh, that's what God calls us to do. Now, those kinds of messages that you're getting from the pulpit are very tough. But you're getting the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And he would not be doing us justice if he didn't give us that kind of message. Now, you know that what we've been doing in this class has been those same kind of messages, haven't they? And so when you hear that, you realize, okay, this is the same thing that's being said by two different people, independent of each other, but both reading the same Bible and trying to be honest. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to encourage you to support the pastor because it's during these times when he preaches hard messages that he really needs our support more than ever. So let's remember to pray for the pastor. Now, our passage today is Matthew chapter 10, okay? Now, or Luke chapter 10. That's it. You say, what Bible have you been reading this week? Uh, uh, Luke chapter 10. And last week we came to a, what was called a pivot point in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus ends his ministry in Galilee and he turns his face, the scripture says, uh, toward Jerusalem. He sets his face in determination to move toward Jerusalem, although it's going to cost him his life. And he sends out an advanced team to go into Samaria to prepare for his arrival there and the advance team is rejected. When Jesus gets there, he also is rejected. There's still many more cities to go through before he reaches Jerusalem. So he's going to send out more teams. They're going to minister, prepare the way for the Lord. And we're going to pick up at Luke chapter 10. Now look at verse 1. After these things, after uh, what happened last week, the Lord appointed 70 others also. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now today we're going to cover verses 1 through 20. And we're going to divide this into three sections. If you like to divide your Bible and put notes in the margin. Verses 1 through 12, we're going to see instructions. Jesus gives directions or instructions to the apostles, or to the 70. Then verses 13 through 16, Jesus pronounces woes or judgments upon certain cities. And then the third section is verses 17 through 20, and here Jesus gives an explanation of what's going to happen, or what happened in the ministry of the 70 that he sent out. Now I want you to notice in these 20 verses, if you have what's called a red letter edition of the Bible, only two of those verses are written in black. Every other verse is red. So verse 1 is in black, and verse 17 is in black, and these are words that are spoken by someone other than Jesus. So this is a very important section. You'll see how all this works out. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in verse 1 is the number there. It says he sent out 70. Which shows us that the apostolic ministry is not limited to the twelve. These men right here that he sends out are as much apostles as the twelve were. They're in a little different category, but they are sent out by Jesus and they are authorized to minister on his behalf. Now why 70? It's very interesting. In the immediate context, like verse 2, why 70? It's because there's so much work to do, the 12 can't handle it. <laughs> he needs more helpers. That's one reason. But I think Luke uh, has a, maybe a deeper meaning here 
than just that there's a lot of work to do. Seventy is the number of the nations that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Remember when God scattered the people and turned them into nations? He, he creates 70 nations. Some of your translations, if you have a New American Standard or NIV, it may say 72 nations. Uh, but that really doesn't matter because the Greek translation of Genesis 10 says 72. The Hebrew translation says, or the Hebrew version says, 70. But whichever, that's the number of nations that God created back in Genesis 10. And so what we have here, I believe, is Luke is indicating that uh, the mission that Christ has for his disciples and his, eventually his church is a worldwide mission that is going to reach beyond Jerusalem, even though that's where he has set his face, and it's going to reach all the nations of the world. In fact, in Luke's great commission, in Luke 24, Jesus gives the commission and he says, I want you to go and make disciples among all the nations. So nations is a very important word here. So we see a mission that is worldwide that starts, I believe, in Luke chapter 10, continues on in the book of Acts, and then is carried out even today. So we are still attempting to reach the nations in each generation. Now, notice the strategy in verse 1 as well. It says he sent them out two by two. And that would be for security reasons, uh, for support, and so on and so forth. These are advanced teams. He's going to send two in this city, two to that city, and so forth. Now, that is a summary statement. Notice that's written in black. Luke says that. But now what we're going to do is we're going to get the details. That's what he did, sent them out. Now let's find out how he sent them out. Okay? The details, and Jesus speaks now. Now notice what it says in verse 2. Then he, Jesus, said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the loafers are few. Is that what it says? <laughs> now there are many loafers. <laughs> it's the laborers are few. Now notice the harvest. When there's a harvest, that means time is short. You only have a certain window of opportunity to pick the crops. And that is when, and when you have few laborers at harvest time, you're in trouble. So guess what you do? You go out and you recruit and you add laborers to the workforce. And that's what we do when we have a harvest, even here in Texas and in the South. Uh, but this is a metaphor. He's not talking about picking crops, is it? He's talking about the kingdom of God and bringing people into the kingdom. So this harvest of souls or people that God's gathering, this ingathering of people into his kingdom, he has many that he wants to bring in, but there are very few laborers. Now look what else it says in verse 2. He says, therefore, now this is Jesus speaking to those people, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, very interestingly here, they are told to pray that God would send out laborers, and guess who he sends out? He sends them out. They pray for more laborers, and it ends up that they're the answer to their own prayer. Lord, send out laborers. And he says, okay, I'll send you and you. Me? Well, I was praying for you some laborers. 
So you have to watch out what you pray for because oftentimes God uses you as the means to answer his prayers. So don't say, Lord, send that many missionaries if you're not going to be counted as one of them because he may be choosing you. And then guess what you'll have to do? What the pastor said. You may have to leave your country. You may have to leave your family in order to serve the Lord. So anyway, so he says, pray. Then he chooses them and he sends them out. Now look at verse 3. He gives an order right here. This is a command. Go your way. You have directions. You know where you have to go. Go your way. But he's going to give us a warning. Look, he says. Behold. Go your way, but watch out. I send you as lambs among wolves. So what we have here, the wolf would be a natural enemy of the lamb. So he says, I'm sending you out, but there are going to be enemies that are going, you're going to confront, and it's going to be dangerous for you. This mission is not an easy mission. So be forewarned. To be forewarned in the, warned in the sense is to be forearmed. It's not easy. It's going to be dangerous. So don't take this haphazardly. When you go into the ministry, you want to make sure you don't do that. I remember a friend of mine who was working for Shell Oil, and he had to build, he had to get the oil from one side of a mountain over to the other side where the ship came in. He Somehow he had to get the oil, he was in Columbia, he had to get the oil from one side over the mountain into the ship. And so he built a pump station right on top of the mountain. And he got all the workers, got, went around and recruited a whole bunch of workers in Columbia. And every Friday after they worked, you know how they built that pump station? They didn't have cranes, mountain was real high, didn't have cement trucks. How do you think they built a, a pump station on top of a mountain? They went down to the beach and they picked up one pebble at a time. That's how they did it. Put it in buckets, carried it up, built it like that. But he would pay them every week in cash. And when they would come down the mountain into the village, they were met by bandits. And they would get robbed. And the bandits, believe it or not, were working for the parish priest. <laughs> they worked for the priest. <laughs> and in that part of Columbia, the Catholic Church was very powerful and... Uh, not necessarily, you know, on the up and up, and there were some corrupt priests, just like they're corrupt preachers today, so on and so forth. And he had these guys rob the workers. And so my friend had to withhold the pay. And he would bring it down himself. And they wouldn't rob the gringo. They wouldn't rob the American. And so he would bring it down. Now, every time they had the paycheck, they went down the mountain with the paycheck to take care of their family, they were confronted with enemies. Jesus said the same thing here in ministry. There are going to be enemies that are going to try to take your life, so beware of it. Wolves eat lambs. So he's talking about a life and death type ministry right here. And then look what he says in verse 4. This may have some practical implications as well as spiritual implications. <coughs> carry neither money. Well, I guess so. If you got enemies out there, don't carry money. Carry neither money, bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Now, he doesn't mean go barefooted, but he means don't 
He means travel light. Don't carry what you don't need. Uh, travel light and trust God. Trust God for the outcome. And then he says, and greet no one along the way. Uh, in the Middle East, greetings aren't like, uh, how you doing? Uh, oh, fine, hope you had a good day, great. That's not how they are. In the Middle East, people, when they greet, it becomes a chat. You know, a friendly chat that could take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or, or longer. And so he says, uh, travel light and don't waste time. Because this is an urgent mission. Remember, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's determined to get there at a certain time. You know what time he has to get there? By Passover. He's on a calendar. He can't get there after the Passover. He has to get there for the Passover. He has to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples and then be sacrificed the next day. So he has to get there at a certain time. There's no time for friendly chats, no time for waste. This is an urgent mission. And then he says in verse 5, and we've seen this in the last chapter, whatever house you enter first, go to the first house and say, peace to this house. Now this doesn't mean, oh God bless you type peace. This means, talk about the peace that the kingdom of God is bringing. Kingdom peace. Uh, it's the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom where you will be removed from this oppression of Roman government and you will experience real peace. Not Roman peace, you'll experience God's peace. So pronounce peace, that's salvation, if you want to use that word, upon the house. And if a son of peace is there, that means you have somebody who is receptive to the message. One of the remnant who are believers that are looking for the Messiah's coming. Your peace will rest on it. If not, if they say, get off my porch, it will return to you. If they don't accept the message, then you're going to have to take the message and go somewhere else. And then he says in verse 7, and remain in the same house. That means if they accept you, remain in the same house, accept hospitality, eating and drinking such things as they give. So once you go there, stay there. Because people will extend hospitality. That's how they treated traveling preachers and teachers in those days. They extended hospitality. He said, stay there. Now, I've dealt with this about two weeks ago when he, when he sent out the 12 originally, and we talked about the importance of accepting hospitality that people offer you. So he says, stay there. And then he says, in verse 7, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. So if you're there ministering the gospel, uh, they should take care of your upkeep. Why? Because they're benefiting from the gospel they're benefiting from the gospel, then they should take care of the one who preaches the gospel. And then he says, in end of verse 7, do not go from house to house. Now, remember, we dealt with that a couple weeks ago, too. You don't say, I want to go to this house. Oh, this isn't so nice. I think I'll go to the house over here. That's a little nicer. No, you just stay where they invite you. And I told you about my experiences on doing some mission trips, and some of the places are nicer than others. Okay, But you have to be content. And that's what he says in verse 8. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, they welcome you, eat such as is set before you. 
I don't care if you've never seen that kind of food before, just eat it. This is a mission, not a vacation. Okay? Sometimes we try to mix the two. That doesn't mean that the choir in Hawaii is having a vacation. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> Look at verse 9. And heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. See, the kingdom of God is about restoration. Uh, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached, which is a message that God is restoring the earth and he's restoring all creation, it includes certain things, and it includes, partially at least, the healing of the sick and the casting out of demons. And this is part of the kingdom process because the kingdom is about restoration. And we should get a glimpse of the kingdom, those of us who follow the King Jesus, we occasionally should see him heal people. Now, we don't see it in total. We don't see it in full. That will come when he returns. But we should be getting glimpses of the kingdom. The kingdom comes in word and power, word and deed. And so they're not just to preach the gospel. They are to demonstrate the gospel through healing the sick. Now look at verse 10. But now we have a contrast. Whatever you city, city you enter, and they do not receive you, they do not welcome you, then go out into the streets and say, what? Call fire down from heaven? No, that was last week. Remember that? That was the wrong answer. Go out into the streets and the very dust, and say to those people, the very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Notice that that shaking the dust off of your feet is a judgment against the city that rejects the kingdom message. To reject the message is to reject the messenger and its judgment. There, nevertheless, know this. Now watch what you're to say to that city that's rejected you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now notice in verse 9, the city that received them and the people who were healed, they were to say, the kingdom has come near to you. You see that in verse 9? That statement is now repeated in verse 11 to the city that rejects them. So whether you accept the gospel message and the messengers, or you accept the gospel message and the messengers, you're to say this. In both situations, the kingdom of God has come near to you. To the city that accepts, the blessings of the kingdom have come near to you. To the cities that reject, the judgment of the kingdom comes near to you. You see, the kingdom has two parts. It has blessings and it has cursings. When Christ comes back, will people be saved? Yes. The blessings of the kingdom, salvation. When Christ comes back, will people be judged? Yes. So to both, you can say, the kingdom has come near to you. 
Now that's very important. Now the kingdom has arrived in some sense already because healings are taking place and people are being raised and all that kind of stuff. But it hasn't come in its fullness. It will also come in its fullness in the future. And both the present aspect of the kingdom and the future aspect of the kingdom have both blessings and judgment. Not in fullness, but in part. Okay? Does that make sense? You get that? That's very important if you can get that. <clears throat> now look at verse 12. Verse 12. But I say to you, Jesus says, that it will be more tolerable in that day when judgment falls, judgment day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that city that rejects you two guys who go out and preach to God. In judgment day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for the city that rejects the gospel now. Now, notice the comparison. In that day, in the future, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for that city that rejects you. Now, why would he make, why does he make a comparison between the city that rejects the messengers now and Sodom? Well, what was Sodom's sin? Well, we all say Sodom's sin was homosexuality, and it was. And many times the scripture talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in that aspect. But for this case, Luke is thinking of a different kind of sin that Sodom commits. And it was the sin of inhospitality. Mm -hmm. Abram goes to Sodom, and what happens? Do they accept him? With open arms? No, they reject him. See, so what we have is God's messenger not receiving hospitality, but actually being uh, rejected or abused, I guess is how we would say. And so he says that in the day of judgment, Sodom will be receive, receive more consideration, maybe less judgment than the city that rejects the gospel now. Why is that? Why would... It'd be more tolerable for Sodom than it would for one of these cities along the way. Well, a man a number of years ago wrote a book, and it was entitled, very interesting title, it was Sodom Had No Bible. I like that title. Sodom Had No Bible. These people have a Bible. They have an Old Testament. They know Messiah is coming. They know the kingdom of God's coming. Guess what? They have the revelation of God. They have the prophets who've told them this, and they still reject it. Sodom didn't have any of that. It will be more tolerable for Sodom than for these cities in the day of judgment. Very interesting. Now, I want to show you something else. Keep your finger here, and I want you to turn over to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. Sodom is mentioned in the book of the Revelation. And it's a very interesting way it is used. Revelation 11, as you know, is the chapter that deals with the two witnesses. Remember, we believe that maybe Elijah and Moses could come back before the Messiah returns. And you have these two prophets who are witnessing in the city. 
But what happens, look at verse 7. When these two prophets finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's the Antichrist, uh, will make war against them and overcome them and what? Kill them. Now watch this. They are not accepted. Their message is rejected. Now look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called what? Sodom. And what else? Egypt. Now, Egypt is the Exodus story where the Jews who were oppressed had to escape for their lives. But notice that this city is also called Sodom. What city is it? Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was what? Well, what city was he crucified in? Jerusalem. But guess what God calls it? Sodom. Why? Because they rejected Two messengers. Christ sends out the messengers two by two into a city and they're rejected. And they're just like Sodom. That's sort of interesting, isn't it? It shows you how important it is to show hospitality to God's ministers and how important it is to receive the gospel when it is preached. Now go back to Luke, because that was Jesus' instructions right there. Now we have Jesus pronouncing judgment. Now he stops talking to the 70 guys that he sends out, and he addresses the cities. The cities that will reject the messengers. And look what he says, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, that word woe means cursed, judged. Uh, we don't know where Chorazin is, but we do know that Bethsaida was the city of Philip, where Philip lived. I think it's where uh, uh, Andrew and Peter meet Jesus for the first time. And he says, woe to you cities. Now these are cities that are up north in the Galilee region, and these were places where Jesus performed his first miracles. And uh, they seemed to accept him. They welcomed him in this area. And yet, guess what it says? Woe to you cities. Why in the world would it say that? That's sort of strange. And then look what he says in verse 13. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in pagan Tyre and Sidon, they would have, what? Repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Which means that these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, although miracles were done in them, guess what they didn't do? They did not repent. So while they accepted Jesus, and they said, Oh, Jesus, come on in! And he healed people, and he performed miracles, and they said, Oh, we accept you! It was short-lived. It didn't produce repentance. And repentance is the one thing that's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. They didn't repent. Notice, initial hospitality. Initial acceptance. But as soon as he left the town, he wasn't on their mind anymore. And they just went back to their own ways. Look at verse 14. 
but it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Cities that God judged at the judgment than for you. Cities that Isaiah the prophet railed against, pagan cities, they're going to get off easier than these cities where Jesus performed miracles. And then he says in verse 15, and you Capernaum, wait a second, not Capernaum, yeah, you Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven. When Jesus ministered in Capernaum, remember this is where he preaches the Luke 4 chapter, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the anointing me to preach the gospel of the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, cast out demons, heal the sick, remember that? And he performed all kinds of miracles. Remember, he was just, you remember, you have been with us for weeks. He was just rejected by his own hometown at Nazareth. They, he couldn't perform any miracles there because they didn't have faith. And he went to Capernaum and he performed all these miracles. Certainly there's not a, not a city on the face of the earth that has received such a blessing. In fact, it was so, the blessings were so great, he says, you were exalted into heaven. It was like you were in heaven. It's like heaven came down and glory was all around you and you were the recipients of all these miracles. Notice what he says in 15. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. You will be brought down to destruction. You think you had heaven's blessing? You have another thing coming. You're going to be brought down to destruction. So here are... Why? Because Capernaum accepted Jesus initially, but guess what they didn't do? They didn't persevere in the faith. They said, we believe, we believe, we believe. And back in chapter 4, when I was going through there, I would have said, now there's a believing town. But guess what? Jesus has changed my opinion, hasn't he? Yeah. Everything is not what it appears to be. They walk in awe. They appear to be saved. They join the Sunday school class. They appear to be saved. They proclaim Jesus as Lord. They appear to be saved. But there's no repentance. There's no perseverance. And guess what? Brought down to hell. That's judgment. That's a pretty strong statement right there, isn't it? Here's what he says in verse 16. He who hears me. He who hears you, rather, hears me. Notice that. You are my representatives. If they hear you and obey the word, they hear me. He who rejects you, rejects me. In other words, if you reject the messenger, you reject the Messiah. <coughs> and he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. As the Father sends me, so send I you. So you have that chain right there. The Father, Jesus, and the messengers. And to reject the messengers, to reject the Messiah, to reject God the Father. So this is pretty tough stuff. So that's the woes that he pronounces upon the city. Now we have an explanation. In verse 17, very interestingly, what we have is it's written in black again. So what we have is a summary. It says, then the 70, Luke tells us, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So what we have here is we have 
a summary statement. We don't have any idea what happened out in the field. We don't have one example of what happened. No case histories when they went to this town or that town or town A, B, C, or D. All we know now is when they come back, they're excited. And the trip wasn't as bad as they thought. There weren't so many wolves out there after all. Somehow they were able to overcome the wolves. Now remember, the wolves are your enemies. Okay? And so they come back, and in verse 17, they're excited, and they said two things. Those wolves were subject to us in your name. <laughs> the demons were subject to us in your name. Now, first of all, when I read this, I say, well, that's pretty good. Because last week we discovered that the 12 couldn't cast out one demon. So the 70 are more successful than the 12. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Notice it says, they were subject to us in your name. When you look at that phrase in your name, uh, that carries significance. It means to be identified with that name. If I come to you in the name of Buddha, guess what you surmise? Because I'm a Buddhist. If I come to you in the name of Marx, you surmise that I'm a Marxist. If I come to you in the name of Jesus, I guess you assume that I represent Jesus. That makes sense, doesn't it? You identify with the name. But in the name also means to have the authority of that person. If uh, a police officer comes in the name of a law, he has the authority of the law behind him. See? These 70 come in the name of Christ, so they come with Jesus' authority. And coming in Jesus' authority, the demons cannot stand. The enemy cannot stand. So they're pretty excited. So what we have here is we have that summary statement. Now remember, these 70 are not part of the insiders group. He's not part of the 12, the original apostles. These are just part of that great crowd that follows Jesus everywhere. And he starts picking them out and says, you, you, go, you, you, go. Last week, that some of them volunteered and he rejected them, remember? So these are people who have responded to his call, and they've been very successful. Now look at verse 18. We go back to the red letter. We have Jesus' response. Okay? They were excited. Okay? Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. First time Jesus ever uses the word Satan to describe the devil in the Gospel of Luke. He says, I saw, when they said, man, the demons were subject to us. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, when did he see this happening? What's he talking about when he said, I saw Satan fall? Does he mean that he was there when Satan fell back before the Garden of Eden, when Lucifer fell from heaven? Is that what he's talking about? Does he mean when you were out there casting out demons, I saw Satan being defeated when you were out there ministering? I saw it. Or is he talking about future judgment? I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Has he seen it in his mind as if it's already happened, as if Satan himself has already fallen, but it really isn't going to happen to the future judgment? Now, those are our options right there. And as I look at this passage of Scripture, I see something that's very interesting. I look at verse, end of verse 18. Notice 
heaven. You see heaven? Satan falls from heaven. Back in verse 15, Capernaum is exalted to heaven. Do you see that? And it's brought down to hell. When will it be brought down to hell in the future judgment? Here we have Satan, the exalted one. Guess what? Brought right down to hell. Judged. And when you look through this, you'll see how this works, because at the end of verse 20, he talks about people's names who are written where? In heaven. Ah, guess what? The people who have repented and have humbled themselves and gotten down on their knees, guess what happened to them? They are exalted to heaven. When will that happen? Well, our names are written there right now, but guess what? One day we will receive the full blessings of salvation. God's full blessings. So I think that he's probably talking about a future judgment based on those three phrases there. To heaven, from heaven, in heaven, in verses 15, 18, 20. But I'm not sure. But the bottom line is that Satan's going to be judged. That, we know that Satan is going to be judged. Uh, just as Capernaum's fate was sealed the moment it rejected Christ, even though it saw the miracles, Satan's fate was sealed when these guys were able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. It just meant that Satan's time was up. He didn't have a, he didn't have a snowball's chance after that. Now, look at verse 19. Behold, I give you the authority, notice this, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Just words that describe Satan and the enemy, that old serpent, Satan. You know, the Bible talks about Satan the serpent in the garden. It talks about Satan the serpent in the book of Revelation. He says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Just a symbolic way of saying on the enemy over Satan and demons. And over all the power of the enemy. Shows you that's what he's talking about. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Even though you face the enemies, they can't hurt you. Even though you are sheep among wolves, they can't hurt you. They will attempt to hurt you. Now it doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that you're not going to die even for the faith. But ultimately... That's not the final word, because we know the final word is what? Resurrection, right? So here we have all authority. Nevertheless, Jesus says, don't rejoice over this. Now, why does he say that? Because in back in verse 17, what were they rejoicing over? That demons were subject to them, that they had authority over demons. He says, oh, yeah, I'll give you authority to trample on demons, all that stuff, but... Nevertheless, don't let that get you excited. <laughs> That's not what should excite you. Look, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. See, that's what they said back in verse 17. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Judas Iscariot cast out demons. 
But where is he? <laughs> That's not something to rejoice over. Rejoice that God is going to exalt you, that your name has been written in heaven. By the way, that phrase, name written in heaven, or something like that, is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's simply God's way of saying, in time salvation. That you will be resurrected, you will experience all the kingdom's blessings, because God is already, right now, has subscribed your name in heaven. So, that is what we should be rejoicing on, in. So, what do we say about all this? Well, the mission that began in Luke 10, verse 1, continues over in Acts as they go out into all the world to preach the gospel based on the Great Commission, and it's carried on by us today. And these passages right here, I believe, apply to us. Why? Because the harvest is more plentiful now than ever before. Would you agree with that? Yes. Time is shorter now than ever before. Would you agree on that? The kingdom is nearer now than ever before. Would you agree on that? The laborers are needed more than ever before. Would you agree on that? Of course. The opposition is greater than ever before. Would you agree on that? Prayer is needed more than ever before. Would you agree on that? So that more names can be written in heaven than ever before. Would you agree on that? Let's go at it. I'll at it. Always at it. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for a passage that's uh, so real. We see what we can do in the strength of Jesus Christ. We see how we fail, as the disciples did last week, in the strength of their own will and the strength of the flesh. Oh, Lord, help us to have your authority. Go out, preach the gospel knowing that many more names can be written in heaven. Help us to be part of this great labor force that goes out and preaches the gospel of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.